You're listening to Middle East Analysis, a podcast series taking a close look at the Middle East North Africa region. Hello, and a very warm welcome to Middle East Analysis. Now, in today's podcast, we're going to be talking about the current state of play with regard to Israel and Palestine, something that quite often dominates the region, even when other issues raise their heads regionally. There's always Israel-Palestine bubbling away underneath, and particularly the involvement of the United States and so forth. I'm joined by Dr. Harry Hagopian, our regular studio guest with his big brain and knowledge. Harry is an international lawyer, ecumenical expert, and many other things as well. Harry, how are you? I'm well, uh, James. It's a pleasure to be here with you. And yes, the region is now being battered by so many problems in most of the countries. So yes, Israel-Palestine is an important one, as you mentioned, because for me, it has always been the hub of all the other conflicts in the MENA region. And uh, it is important not to forget Israel-Palestine just because our uh, levels of concentration are straying elsewhere in the region. Now, the last time we spoke those months back, we did talk about the so-called deal of the century. And we're a bit ahead of time there, I must say. We actually were talking about that (laughs) little plug before anyone else was, pretty much. That said, that and a number of other measures do seem to be slightly prejudicial, or they're certainly sidelining the Palestinians. So much so, my first question to you is, is the two-state solution now effectively dead? It's a very good question, and it's really the $60,000 question, James, which nobody is able to answer. I can think of the brightest experts and the dumbest experts coming together and saying exactly the same thing. Well, and please me... don't tell me in which category you place me. Oh, oh, but... <laughs> I'm, I'm too diplomatic for that. <laughs> but, but, but I would say I'll, I'll still expect you to try to answer it. Okay. What I would say is the following. As we do not deal with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict as we let more settlements take place, as we let people to be displaced. The Khan al-Ahmar encampment is a very good example of something that is happening between Jerusalem and Jericho, where a lot of those Palestinians are to be forcefully removed by Israel. And everybody in the world, from the European Union to individual European states to some Arab states are saying, you can't do that. And that's not because of the fact that there are a couple of hundred people living in that encampment, but it's also because if you do that, and if you replace it by expanding or extending an Israeli, dare I add, illegal settlement on that Palestinian land, then you are further cutting off Jerusalem from the rest of the West Bank and making the two-state solution even less viable. So my answer directly to you, whether you place me in the dumb or bright category of experts, is that it is not possible, in my opinion, at this stage to envisage a one-state solution or a binational state for the simple reason that if the two-state solution is such a big problem for the Americans and the Israelis, where you have two sovereign states next to each other, imagine what it means if the Israelis are supposed to accept or facilitate the idea of a one-state solution where Palestinians and Arab Israelis and uh, Israeli Jews have the same rights 
in the one state. That would even be more anathema to them and it would run counter to everything they believe in, uh, not least the fact that Israel is basically a project for bringing uh, all the Jews into the country. And if you just go a few steps back and look at what the Israeli Knesset did with the approval of the Prime Minister Netanyahu, and that is to pass a bill which became an act in Parliament that basically removed Arabic as the second national language of Israel and kept it only the Jewish conception of it and Hebrew, then that, in my opinion, is an indication of how Israel is trying subtly and surreptitiously, even at this early stage, to counter the issue of a one-state solution. So I always say the two-state solution is the easier one, but the two-state solution is becoming increasingly more difficult, although I would be one of those who would argue that it is not yet irreversible on the ground. It is becoming extremely harder and harder, and we're living in a political climate where Americans and Israelis seem to think that they can get away with anything they want, and the Palestinians have just got to shut up and take it. And that to me is also dangerous because the day will come when they will explode again. And so one state or two state, I honestly don't know because at this moment it's neither one state or two states, it's a virtual state. But we talked about sharp and dumb commentators. Let's talk about sharp and dumb interviewers now. So I don't know where I'm going to fit in this one, but I am going to ask some, let's say, simplistic questions just so you can inform inform me. What is the Israeli and possibly by extension American view of a one state solution? How do we define that in their eyes? The Israelis and Americans do not have a conception of a one state solution because they uh, uh, reject it. And therefore, in their eyes, and certainly in the eyes of the political establishment in Israel, the idea of a one-state solution is anathema, which is why I say that if they think that the one-state solution is unacceptable, and they're doing everything to make the two-state solution unachievable, then where do we go with that? Do we basically go by putting the Palestinians back in a box and leaving them in little pockets of territory that are disassociated and disconnected from each other and then pretend, well, you've got some territory, sit on it and uh, shut up, don't complain. I mean, come on, that doesn't work. But that is where reality stands at the moment, given the weaknesses of the Palestinian leadership, given the policies per sued by Israel and the United States administration, and given the impotence of the world, including the European Union, to be basically a buffer zone against those aggressive acts undertaken against Palestinians. So the solution, therefore, is almost not to find one and to just carry on, and the Palestinians are what, supposed to be happy that they've got some place? Well, there's always been a trope. There's always been a saying in political circles, James, for years now, this is nothing new, that as far as Israel is concerned, they don't want to return territory and they don't want the establishment of a Palestinian state. What they want, basically, is to manage the occupation. And in a sense, whether knowingly or unknowingly, 
the Oslo Agreement, the Accords, gave them the opportunity to do that because it divided the Palestinian territories into three areas, areas A, B, and C, which meant that Israel could claim to get most of the geography while dumping the demography, otherwise the population, into areas that have to be controlled by the Palestinian Authority or any Palestinian institution that pretends to be a state. And that, to me, is the worrying part, that the more we leave it and the more we get disinterested with Palestine, because we're worried about Syria, Iraq, Libya, Egypt, Saudi, the Gulf, then this is becoming more and more rooted into reality. And As that happens, then the Palestinians are facing the possibility of losing the hope for self-determination and being contained, caged in, South Africa-like, into little pockets and told, that's what you're going to get, deal with it. And that, I think, is a recipe for disaster, maybe not tomorrow, but certainly the day after. Now, you were involved, weren't you, in the second track negotiations for Oslo? Yes, I was. To ask a pretty to-the-point question, did you not see it coming that the geography could be used against the Palestinians or rather the geography could be used in favour of the more powerful state? You know, in hindsight, wisdom is such a precious commodity. No, most of us working, whether in my modest way as a second-track negotiator alongside other colleagues or the those who were negotiating the Accords, whether Americans, Israelis, or Palestinians, the Palestinian side did not think that we would get to this because simply one has to just realize one thing, no matter how clever you are, and there were lawyers, there were uh, politicians, there were sociologists, all sorts of people were trying to advise all three parties. But there was at that time a sense of hope in the air, and that hope meant that we are going to get this, that no matter how dodgy both Yitzhak Rabin and Yasser Arafat were, that eventually between them and Clinton, something could be put together. And later it was, of course, Ehud Barak. So in a sense, that hope is what moved us forward. We never thought that that hope was going to be snuffed out. But that is what has happened. And therefore, at the moment, in hindsight, it's a little bit like uh, when you're dealing with the murder and then you go and do a post-mortem and you get better results than when you're looking at the body lying in the field. So in a sense, now at hindsight, everybody is poo-pooing the Oslo Accords. And I, as somebody who then thought that they had some chance of success, although there were people even then, Mustafa al-Barghouti, the late Edward Said and others who were saying it's not going to work, I was one of those who thought, you know what? Hope springs eternal. Let's hope that both sides have come to realize that the only way to deal with the conflict is by resolving it. And of course, we were clearly wrong because if we look at the situation now, it's not only absurd, it's really desolate. Well, the trouble is, you know, you add a quarter of a century and things, as you say, are desolate. We're not going to do the Harry is not a prophet thing that we tended to do many times in our former former podcast. But if... A two-state solution, okay, yes, you said there's a chance, a tiny chance that it could be resurrected at some point, and a one-state solution isn't going to be accepted. 
what is going to happen in in the medium term, the next 10 years? Well, in the medium term is very simple. What is going to happen? Because the one-state solution, to my opinion, at the moment is very impractical and the two-state solution is unachievable. What is going to happen is that Palestinians are going to continue suffering. They're going to bottle up more angst, more grief, more sorrow, more anger, more irritation, more frustration until the day comes when it's going to blow up again. And when it blows up, things might change on the ground, and that is what might awaken politicians. You know what? Maybe we should address this uh, situation once and for all. A a lullaby that I've heard many, many a time over the past 25, 30 years. But it's interesting because now things are changing a little bit as well, in that the American uh, administration, the U.S. administration, led by the likes of uh, President Trump, but principally the actors on the chessboard are his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, the Middle East negotiator Jason Greenblatt and the ambassador, U.S. ambassador in Jerusalem, who for all intents and purposes is, in my opinion, the Israeli ambassador to Washington. And all three of them are basically trying as in as much as possible to choke the Palestinians and to really remove any hope that they might have of a future negotiation. Just imagine the facts. First move the move of the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. It's a slap in the face of international law and international legitimacy and something that they did just to prove the point that, oh, come on, let's be serious about that. If Israel wants Jerusalem to be its capital, then our embassy should come to Jerusalem. Excuse me, there is something seriously flawed in that legal logic or political logic, call it what you may. Then we heard that the U.S. administration was going to starve UNRWA from its funds. UNRWA is the United Nations Relief Agency, which helps Palestinian camps, not only in the occupied Palestinian territories, but also in Jordan, in Syria, and in Lebanon, principally. Now, if that goes, what's going to happen? The U.S. says, well, they can go, the Palestinians can go and become part of the U.S. Uh, refugees global bracket rather than have their own agency. That is rubbish because the UNRWA is already facing a deficit this year. Who's going to pay for health? Who's going to pay for the schooling? Who's going to pay for the food that those Palestinians uh, need, no matter their numbers? Then we'd hardly done that when suddenly something even more petty was that the U.S. administration withheld funds for certain institutions in Arab East Jerusalem, like the money that used to go for some of the hospitals, whether the Lutheran-led Mount Scopus Hospital, whether the other hospitals, P2P, people-to-people dialogue exercises have also been starved out of uh, money. And the P2P was the only umbilical cord that was keeping Israelis and Palestinians talking to each other. That was also removed. I mean, one move after the other in order to try and reduce the ability of the Palestinians to claim their rights in the hope that they will be so battered that they will come and lie down in front of the Israeli and American governments and say, okay, just give us anything and we are happy to take it. That is not going to happen because the day that happens, whoever from the Palestinian side signs on the dotted line will be a quizzling and will the next day be eliminated by some Palestinian faction or other. Final question. Now, from what you've said, obviously, that, that in a sense, it's only going in one direction with regard to, to the, the frustrations felt by the Palestinians. If you remember four months ago, 
I did ask you whether there would potentially be a third intifada. Now, nobody wants a, a violence response. At the time, you said no. But listening to what you've just said over the course of that answer, it sounds like you're moving closer to, well, yes, in the future. Is that correct? Yes, in the future. And if I remember correctly, when you asked me that question some four months ago, James, I said, no, I don't see it happening now for a variety of reasons, not least because the Palestinians themselves are too tired, both economically and physically, politically, in order to be able to undertake a third uprising or intifada. However, I would still maintain what I said four months ago, which is that if this happens, for instance, only a few days ago, the US decided as another punitive measure, and that's the only way I can describe it, to close the US consulate general in East Jerusalem and Arab Jerusalem, which used to be incidentally, James, literally two minutes away on foot from where I had my own offices in Jerusalem when I was running the Middle East Council of Churches and when I was involved with those second-track negotiations. And they're going to close that consulate, which used to deal with all the Palestinian applications for visas, other issues that have to do with the Palestinians, and the embassy in Tel Aviv used to deal with the Israeli population. Now that the embassy has moved from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, the Americans are saying there's no need for another consulate there. We can close it and everything will be done uh, by the embassy. Well, that consulate general did not only issue visas to go to the States for Palestinians, it also was a pipeline, a channel, a broadcasting uh, wavelength between Americans and Palestinians. And that is also being disrupted. So all those measures are incremental, but they're ramping up the pressure on uh, Palestinians in general, be it the leadership, be it the ordinary people. And yes, the day will come, in my opinion, when there is so much that the Palestinians can bear and no more. What will be the last straw that will break the camel's back? I have no idea. If you look at the Palestinian political topography at the moment, you would notice that the only thing that is working between Palestinians and Israelis is that their security commissions and are still working. So basically what's happening is that the Palestinians are helping the Israelis to make sure that there are no riots, there are no mini intifadas, there are no attacks on Israelis from the Palestinian, between inverted commas, controlled territories. And as a lot of pundits and observers have said, the only thing that the Americans are funding are those committees because it is in Israel's interest for the Palestinians to do their security job for them. But there is a limit to everything. The world moves in cycles, and in this cycle is very inimical to the interests of the Palestinians. The day will come when that will change. And what I am saying and what I've said, whether it's because of my experience, whether it's because I still try desperately to look at the half-full glass, whether it's because my faith nudges me in that direction. But whatever it is, I've always said, why leave it to the inevitable when things really, really go belly up and then we have to deal with the nefarious consequences. Let's deal with it now. But then again, as I said, I might be in the dumb category of experts. (laughs) Well, and I the dumb category of interviewers. But I have to say, the only thing that that you can look at as somewhat inevitable, which is totally tragic, beyond the, the rather depressing conversation we've just had, is that ultimately innocent Israelis and innocent Palestinians will probably die. Innocent Israelis and innocent Palestinians in disproportionate numbers will be dying as they have done. I mean, the number of human rights uh, organizations that have actually 
got statistics out of the number of Palestinians, kids, not only adults, who've been killed on the so-called return marches from Gaza to the Eretz crossing into Israel has been phenomenal. Has anybody said anything? Nobody has said anything because today's world is has become a populist transactional world, not a world where ethics have any significance whatsoever. And whether we like it or not, we all drift in one direction or another when we're trying to analyze a situation because of the current realities that we all are challenged with. So yes, the stasis will continue. The sense of despair will continue. Victims will increase from one side or the other until such time as somebody comes and says enough is enough. But at the moment, there is neither a Mandela nor a D. Clerk in the horizon. Ah, interesting. Well, yeah, let's hope for some positivity before we're both in little wooden boxes six feet under. But it's not looking that way, is it? Nope. Harry, for now, thank you very much indeed. Pleasure, James. <laughs>